Welcome back to MLEX's regulatory podcast, the first for 2021. My name is James Paniki, and every week we catch up with MLEX's team of reporters around the globe for a chat about the most significant regulatory stories of the moment. In just over 10 minutes, we'll be crossing to South Korea, where an artificial intelligence-powered chatbot is making news for, well, for what else? For being racist. It's a quirky story, but one that's unfolding against a backdrop of regulatory change, with tougher privacy rules now very much on the table. And we'll hear that it's not just the chatbot's racism that's causing consternation, but also its propensity to release personal data to those who ask it the right questions. Wu Yongli is standing by to give us the lowdown. First up, though, what a start to the year, with insurgents storming the capital and digital giants deciding to de-platform the leader of the free world. Yes, it's all happening. To make sense of how the role of digital platforms is feeding into the political upheaval in the US, I'm joined now by our digital reporter in DC, Dave Pereira, and from San Francisco, MLEX's chief global digital risk correspondent, Mike Swift. Okay, Dave, uh, we're not even a full month into 2021, and already we've had a riot inside the halls of the US Congress and a second history-making impeachment of President Donald Trump. So why is it that even amid uh, so much dramatic political news, we're discussing something as seemingly pedestrian as content moderation? We're hearing about it because of the role that social media played in that storming of Congress, the the role that it played uh, as an organizing tool and as an inciting tool for for that to have happened, and the use that Donald Trump made of his social media tools during and after that riot. So, as as a result of um, uh, messages that uh, Twitter, in particular, decided were. Uh, inciting violence or could be taken to to incite violence, uh, Twitter permanently kicked Trump off, which is something that opponents of Donald Trump had been begging Twitter to do for four years. Facebook has suspended uh, Donald Trump indefinitely, but at the very least through January 20th, which is his last day in office, YouTube has uh, stopped him from posting for at least seven days. This happened uh, a couple days ago. Uh, and, And then to cap off the the deplatforming uh, before Donald Trump even had an opportunity, uh, as uh, has been reported that he was discussing doing, to go on to an alternative social media platform called Parler, Amazon kicked Parler off of its uh, web hosting cloud. <laughs> so, so, so they're one step ahead of uh, Trump all the way. Just remind us what Parler is for those who aren't familiar with it. It, it doesn't have a high profile at, at all. It, it was constructed to be a alternative social media site to Twitter. It touted itself as a uh, free speech outlet, and it got embraced by the alt-right and some very conservative voices. And so it, it, it has right now a very fringe reputation for places where you're going to find things like white supremacists uh, or people who just think that there was election fraud. Uh, uh, of course, you can't find it at all right now because uh, Amazon has yanked it offline. Mm. 
The conversation is not so much centred on the removal of Parler. It is uh, centering uh, at the moment on the removal of Trump because it brings up issues of free speech. And I suppose the conversation is all about whether or not these technology companies are in fact equipped to make these kind of ethical uh, decisions with such wide-ranging repercussions. Is that right? Sure. Although when it comes to Trump in particular, the notion that he's been silenced is vastly exaggerated. He's still the president of the United States for for the next week. He commands access to uh, the American media, the American airwaves. Uh, there is an entire press corps that's dedicated to writing down every th- single word that he says. He still uh, can issue press releases. So he's certainly not been silenced. But I take your larger point that social media companies have assumed this outsized role in social discourse. People treat them as if they were the equivalent of a of a town square, even though legally they're not. They're private companies. And under American law, they have a First Amendment right to decide who they want to let use their service or not. Now, Mike, before we move on, just tell me something about how the decision by Twitter and Facebook to uh, permanently ban Trump may have resonated in Europe and other parts in the world. What's happened? Well, I think as Dave just said, it's really uh, underscored, you know, sort of the outsized role that these platforms are perceived to have. And uh, MLEX this week uh, reported that uh, many European uh, parliamentarians were actually, um, quote unquote, alarmed that uh, that Twitter had exercised this power of permanently banning Trump and uh, sort of redoubled their calls for uh, a legal set of binding guidelines that would decide what content can be removed and when it should be removed. So it, it's basically kind of uh, underscored uh, the view that these these platforms need to be more closely regulated. Okay, Dave, let's bring it back to you. For those unfamiliar with Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act in the US, tell us what it is and uh, what role it might be playing in all of this. So the reason it's relevant is because Section 230 has been called the First Amendment of the Internet. It doesn't replace the First Amendment, but it does enable online platforms, any website, frankly, to operationalize its ability to leave up or take down content. So in a very quick nutshell, Section 230 was law. It was passed in 1996, right at the start of the commercial internet. It removes liability for companies when uh, they're dealing with user-generated content. So if uh, a website is sued because of something that one of its users posted online, it can say, well, that's really not our problem. That That is, go sue the individual user for, for what that person said. We, as a social media platform or as a website hosting user-generated content, can't be responsible for every single thing that our users say. So, and Dave, D- Dave, sorry to interrupt, but that limited liability is is key in a way in understanding the success of the uh, of the platforms. The fact that they're not liable for stuff that might be published by a user that has um, helped their business model, right? Absolutely, it, it's helped their business model. Just try to imagine a world where 
websites could be potentially sued for a uh, if a restaurant could sue a uh, review site for for a bad review because they said that uh, the food was terrible and the restaurant owner says no wait a minute my food is great if you're that uh, owner of the the review website how much time and money do you want to dedicate to fighting off uh, every single lawsuit from an angry restaurant owner Magnify that uh, to 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 all the things that people say on Twitter, all the things that people say on Facebook. Two thirty arguably is the the statute that has created the modern interactive internet. Mm. And and Trump knew this, right? And that's why he suggested that he would be interested in removing Section Two Thirty because it would go right to the heart of their business model. I don't think Trump understands Section Two Thirty. It's a very e- it's a very easily misunderstandable law. Somehow or the other, he had the impression that Section Two Hundred and Thirty was allowing what was creating greater amounts of censorship online, and and he had a personal interest in this because over the past year we've seen the social media companies very gradually at first and then very quickly toward the end ramp up their moderation of Trump's content. At, at first, by just putting uh, warning labels uh, on things that he, he, was, he would say, uh, warning labels to the effect of, uh, well, the experts don't really uh, uh, say this, and, and here's a link where you can go learn more. Uh, and, and he grew increasingly upset with that, and he blamed Section 230, probably not understanding that his ability to post freely online is enabled by Section 230 because Twitter and Facebook don't assume, even to this day, don't assume legal liability for the things that he said. Mm. And just to wrap up this uh, part of our conversation about Section 230, can we expect it to remain untouched under the new administration? What happens next, we, we can't quite say. It's very unlikely that the conversation about Section 230 disappears because there are Democrats as well as Republicans who have said that they're unhappy with the current state of affairs in Section 230. From the Democratic perspective, Section 230 allows online platforms to ignore consumer protection laws. It allows them to ignore some civil rights laws about uh, equal access to uh, ads for things like uh, housing and employment. Whether or not that bipartisan anger actually translates into uh, legislation. That's the crux of the question. I I think we can safely say that the Biden administration hasn't advertised that Section 230 is high up on its immediate priorities. Coronavirus, ending the pandemic, economic stimulus, those are things that uh, it has paid close attention to so far. So maybe after the immediate round of, of legislation in the first 100 days, uh, dies down, that then we can look to see what the Biden administration will have to say on 230. Just to echo that, I, I mean, I think um, what David said is spot on that, you know, it's unlikely that Section 230 is go- not going to have any changes, but it's equally unlikely that it's just going to be repealed or go away. I think for many years, it's been an article of faith here in Silicon Valley that um, platforms like Twitter and Facebook and YouTube would not have become these global phenomenon had uh, there not been a Section 230 to protect them in their formative years. You know, now they're very powerful companies that can employ an army of lawyers to um, protect their legal interests. But in the early days, that wasn't the case. And and I think that, you know, it's it's 
uh, very much accepted and believe that there, there needs to be some sort of uh, legal shield for uh, for a third party content going forward. So I, I really don't see Section 230 going away, even though Biden did make, you know, a sort of off the cuff remark that it should be completely repealed some months ago. Um, I, I think he doesn't completely understand what Section 230 is, just as Trump doesn't. And Mike, returning to the international aspects of the social media ban imposed on Trump, I mean, you're right to uh, point out that uh, the issue of uh, 230 goes to the heart of this of this uh, conversation. But 230 obviously doesn't apply to these uh, global giants when they're publishing abroad. Every jurisdiction deals with the platforms in different ways. So do we have a sense of the likelihood that the Biden administration might uh, collaborate with other democracies to set content moderation standards? Sure. So, you know, after uh, Twitter took this fateful step of banning Trump, which was over the weekend, I believe, prominent uh, official in the EU, Terry Breton, came out and said, you know, this is this is a, a serious step. And um, what we need to do is the democracies of the world, particularly Europe and North America, need to come together and really put together a, a set of standards for content moderation, you know, what is going to be acceptable on social media and what, what is going to be out of bounds. Um, will that happen? Well, you know, as Dave said, right now there are some much higher priorities here in the U.S., such as coronavirus and the economy uh, and, and it, you know, just sort of getting through this, the inauguration and, and the first 100 days. So that could happen. I, I think that uh, the Biden administration is broadly expected to have a much closer relationship with Europe than the Trump administration did. And, you know, I think we'll see that in uh, the negotiation of a successor to the privacy shield deal. But, you know, I do think that that's going to be well down the line of uh, priorities. And how would the Mark Zuckerbergs or Jack Dorsey's of this world uh, react to proposals for new standards to govern uh, the content of digital platforms? Well, Zuckerberg has uh, said a number of times that, uh, hey, we need to be regulated. We need guidance on this. We can't make these decisions on our own. Facebook has gone ahead and um, tried to set up sort of a quasi-judicial system of an oversight board that um, of sort of leading First Amendment and constitutional law experts from around the world who are supposed to, you know, aid or, or actually supposed to make binding decisions that even Zuckerberg himself can't overturn uh, in terms of um, content takedowns or content staying up. So, um, you know, they are signaling their openness to some sort of standard. The question is, is it going to be something that comes from governments or is it going to be something that is created by the companies themselves and some sort of self-regulatory system, which is certainly what they would prefer rather than having to, you know, hew to a, a government standard. And on the banning of Trump, Jack Dorsey has engaged in some public soul searching of late. Tell me tell me about that. Yeah, you know, Dorsey, he, he's this guy with a long beard. He almost looks like some sort of aesthetic, uh, you know, monk. <laughs> At times, and he um, issued this sort of creed occur uh, on Twitter uh, the other week, saying that uh, you know um, that uh, this was a very difficult decision for them to to ban Trump. Um, 
Certainly it was financially, I'm sure. I mean, although he Trump didn't have as many followers as Justin Bieber or Rihanna or Katy Perry or, or Barack Obama, um, he was uh, definitely up there. So, uh, but, but Dorsey kind of echoed what, what Zuckerberg has said, that, um, that decisions like this really um, sort of uh, highlight that social media platforms have become uh, too powerful to really make these decisions on their own. Just to note that companies have taken some self-regulatory actions already. Uh, when there was that uh, uh, live-streamed terrorist attack in uh, New Zealand, uh, many mainstream tech companies responded by signing on to something called the Christchurch Call, in which they promised to uh, try to uh, make sure that things like live streaming of of terrorist or violent content uh, doesn't occur on on their sites. So they're they're aware that uh, something has to happen. Mike, let me ask you a San Francisco question to end this with. That is where you report from. That's where the MLEX office also happens to be. Now, uh, Dave mentioned that Trump has made threats in the past about the future of Section 230. But what about the threats he made specifically in response to his banning from Twitter? Did anything actually happen on that front at Twitter's world headquarters in San Francisco? Well, there was a lot of alarm this week because uh, the police uh, had intelligence that there was going to be some sort of violent demonstration uh, outside the Twitter building on on Market Street, which is the main main thoroughfare of downtown San Francisco. And it is uh, coincidentally uh, where uh, the MLEX San Francisco Bureau is located. Um, so um, a whole phalanx of uh, police officers came out and uh, uh, took station uh, outside the Twitter building, but nobody showed up except for um, apparently one single counter-protester who was there to protest the Trump protesters. So this all turned out to be nothing. So uh, we'll see what happens. But uh, uh, folks here in San Francisco were very much on alarm the other day. I'm shocked there would be a scarcity of Trump supporters in San Francisco. All right. Look, uh, Mike and Dave, these are um, incredible times making your reporting on these issues uh, all the more important. So thank you very much for talking to me today. My pleasure. Yeah, thanks, James. Dave Pereira is MLEX's technology correspondent in Washington, D.C. Mike Swift is our chief global digital risk correspondent in San Francisco. And we'll post a link to their recent analysis of these developments at the usual place. MLEXmarketinsight.com. That's M-L-E-X marketinsight.com. Once you're there, make a beeline for the Insight Center tab. Coming up, how the antics of a racist chatbot are feeding into South Korea's privacy revamp. This is MLEX's weekly podcast. I'm your host, James Paniki. Thank you very much for making it this far. Now, it's likely to be a big year for privacy policy in South Korea. The privacy watchdog is gearing up for a fight and has put tougher penalties firmly on the agenda. Wu Yong Lee is an MLEX correspondent and she joins me now from Seoul. Okay, Wu Yong, let's uh, set the scene for our listeners. How is South Korea's privacy enforcement shaping up for 2021? It looks like South Korea is aiming for a tougher privacy regime for this year. 
the Personal Information Protection Commission, which is South Korea's privacy regulator, uh, announced a draft revision of the privacy law with tougher monetary penalties for breaches of privacy last month. Uh, So this draft legislation, uh, which is currently under public consultation period, contains new penalty limit of up to 3% of annual turnover. Um, So this move is to bring South Korea more closely in line with some of the tougher privacy regimes around the world, such as in Europe. And in terms of investigation, the PIPC is also planning for a wider inspection for data handling practices in the telecom industry and food delivery services because of some recent privacy breaches that happened from these sectors. And there's another interesting probe announced yesterday is that the regulator is looking into an artificial intelligence chatbot uh, because there has been some controversy surrounding hate speech made by the chatbot and also suspicions over the way developer collected mobile messages that were used as learning materials for this chatbot. We should clarify for listeners who might not understand what a chatbot has to do with privacy. Can you explain why we are talking about this chatbot in the context of privacy? What kind of personal information might it have uh, revealed? So this chatbot is a 20-year-old university student Um, so he's he's identified as a 20-year-old university student and is equipped in this Facebook messages a messenger uh, so where uh, users can talk to the chatbot and have a real conversation. Um, but in order for this chatbot to speak naturally, it has to learn um, from a real life uh, conversation. So what, what, the, what the developer did is that they collected mobile messages that uh, initially belonged to users for the company's other services, but they used them um, in the course of developing this chatbot. The way they used those mobile messages for the developing this chatbot has attracted uh, scrutiny from the privacy regulator because um, in online communities, people are suspecting that there wasn't any safety measures taken For instance, uh, the developer did not de-identify people's names or real addresses. Uh, So when you talk to this chatbot and mention some places, um, it automatically responds with uh, people's real name or real addresses. So that has drawn uh, private scrutiny from the regulator. And it also got in trouble because it was um, it was expressing um, uh, racist sentiments. It also um, it was also particularly unpleasant towards people with disabilities. It just goes to show that this artificial intelligence often uh, reveals the sort of the, the worst side of society rather than yes, yes. Than the best. Right? So yeah. mm-hmm. the pro- the probe does not really have to do with these remarks, racist remarks, but. Uh, these remarks, uh, the hate speech uh, spoken by this chatbot, uh, sparked uh, people's uh, suspicion that this chatbot might have some problems uh, in the course of developing um, this machine. Look, look, that's a that's a fascinating uh, parenthesis. But look, let's return to the 
review of the Personal Information Protection Act, we are particularly interested in the role of the privacy regulator, the PIPC, just because it's a new regulator. Uh, There are proposed changes that are aimed at enhancing the role of the PIPC. What are those changes and how would that um, impact businesses? Um, Revising the Personal Information Protection Act is at the core of the regulator's plan to enhance its role in privacy enforcement. So this draft um, contains some major changes. Uh, First, the regulator is raising the maximum maximum fines for uh, privacy breaches of up to 3% of annual turnover of a business. Um, Under the current law, the fines are limited to the turnover that belong to a specific business area relevant to a privacy breach. So fines for privacy breaches in Korea are considered too low for deterrence purposes. Um, So the vice chairman of the PIPC referred GDPR and EU's Digital Services Act uh, draft when announcing the plan to raise the penalty limit. And he said there has been an upward trend in fines imposed by agencies globally, and the PIPC um, has to uh, be in line with that. And so much for the fines, which are clearly going to uh, are going to increase, which will no doubt be good for the PIPC and its its ability to create this, um, as you mentioned, this deterrent. What other changes to the Personal Information Protection Act um, are being discussed? Um, another big change is a good news for privacy officers, actually. Uh, so South Korea is going to finally scrap criminal liability for privacy violations uh, against privacy officers under this new draft revision. Uh, so far, uh, privacy officers are held liable for hacking attacks, even if that was done by an anonymous hacking group and there was there's no way they could prevent such attack. Uh, but because they failed to prevent the attack and did not take necessary technical prevention measures, uh, they, they were often held responsible for such uh, privacy breaches because of the hacking attacks, and but that and that has created negative impression against this job, and that made people avoid taking the taking up the position of privacy officers, because there's also a, always a possibility of that you can go to jail, although it's very rare to receive prison sentences for privacy violations. Uh, but um, it's one of the the jobs that people really um, tend to avoid. (laughs) It would be hard to recruit for that position, wouldn't it, if you were a company manager? It'd be hard to find an officer who would be prepared to take on the risk of ending up in jail if something went wrong with a with a cyber attack. Right, right. So that's that's one of the reasons that the, the privacy regulator uh, was preparing to uh, get rid of these all these criminal liabilities. Uh, but we have one exception. So the criminal liability stays uh, for incidents where there's an intentional privacy breaches that uh, was intended to benefit someone else, someone's economic benefit. Okay, now you mentioned uh, just now the GDPR, the European Union's um, privacy legislation. South Korea is in talks with the European Commission to win 
adequacy uh, an adequacy decision for data transfers under the GDPR. Where does that stand now and what's going to happen this year? South Korea is aiming to secure a data protection adequacy agreement with the European Commission this year. And this is to enable the free transfer of European data to South Korea. This is a very important issue for South South Korean companies, which have European operations and manage European customers' data. So the PIPC has been in talks with the European Commission to get this adequacy decision under the GDPR. So um, the two sides are working closely to um, to close some gaps between the GDPR and the South Korean privacy framework. One of the key issues raised by European privacy officials is that uh, South Korean privacy regulators should be able to protect European uh, data sets from South Korean national security agencies. Uh, this particular concern was raised after the European Court of Justice made a ruling that found the EU and US privacy shield uh, violated the EU residents' data protection and privacy rights. So uh, the South Korea yesterday adopted a new notice. It's like a supplementary rule to the privacy law. So this is to make sure that national security agencies such as defense ministry, uh, police, intelligence services uh, should abide by the privacy law. And when there's uh, any pr- any privacy breaches from handling European data sets, they will also be subject to sanctions by the privacy regulator. Wu Yong, it's clearly going to be an eventful 2021. So uh, thank you for all of your work in covering these developments. It's been great talking as always. Thank you for your time. Thank you, James. Wu Yong Lee speaking to us from MNEX's bureau in Seoul and we'll post a link to her analysis of the proposed changes to privacy rules and her musings on the racist chatbot on our website, mlexmarketinsight.com. That's mlexmarketinsight, all one word, dot com. And don't forget that you can subscribe to MLEX's podcasts on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud and Stitcher. Feel free to leave a review and help us spread the word. I'm James Paniki, ostensibly MLEX's Asia-Pacific Senior Editor. It's been great spending time with you this week. We'll be back in your feed next Friday. I'll see you then. Bye for now. Bye for now.